the traumatic period of path of darkness, David builds soul. Year two. Forward, just as a year ago today, our American way of life has come to a similar screeching halt, a partial government shutdown, yet another Trump record of infamy. Today marks 30, day 31. By itself, of any other year, you'll be your top five news story of the year. Alack and alas, we're in a trans- Trump-mastic period where shutdown might fight with two other T-Trump stories to be news of the, of the day. The traumatic period, you too, a path of darkness, picks up where you one left off. We're here, hundred plus years, taking you through a chronology, you involuntary shudder to remember. That remembering, cheer up, it's a trimpermontrous, it's a pack of walnut-brained dinosaurs, remember? There's no opposing thumbs, no vision beyond their next meal, and paraphernalia bent for lying the T-Rump's post-truth world. How about the hecka-beak cyclops roaring about now? Who will be the next dino to, dino to flip the Mula Alolaris? Everyone thinks the legal dino, even the Rudy Gagliole, the Medi Circus stops, line up to report it all. The crooked Dodilili should be ancient history, even in prehistoric times, yet she remains the tree rump's most cherished alibi. Because Chris previously theories are easy feasts of friends in domestic, domestic period year two. Their milk and honey preservation sleeps with one eye open at the night. Relax, dear reader, and trust the mill you obvious as you vent down the path of darkness. David Bilsey, Bilsey, January 21st, 2019. Day 368, the shutdown whisper. What I mean? What do you mean? I can't go flogging. The trend for Morris threw up his short arms and paced a short, tight circle. I always flog, go flogging on the weekend. Why do you think I even have him? Mardigal. He can't. He doesn't look good, T-Rump, said the Marilyn, Marine Gun Gully. The Stephen Miller squatted off to the side of Oval Drilling, perfecting his scowling glare for the media circle stops. Look, said T-Rump, this is about the number of times I've flogged since wiping the floor with the cockability. How many times have I told you? The Marine Gun Gully. The Stephen Millenos looked at each other. Your flogging brings other dinosaurs to our properties. And any flogging days, the media circus keeps track of us. Is more, it's more perfect news, they said. And conflict interests would be damaged. That's better. But he's, he's serious, T-Rump, said Maria Gologon. What is the Pentagon done? Upset? I told you to make make him not to make him upset. No, to put him down is fine. It's the monk and honey preservation. It's shut down. You're kidding, really? The T-Rump looked from his chief of staff, his senior advisor, Stephen Milios, confirmed the news. Repentant, not. I don't see how this affects my flogging. Well, it's like this, T-Rump said. The Marine Gunnerelli, Gun 
Kelly. You need to set an example. An example? Of what? Not everyone can be a genius like me. I've picked your go at these guys. How do you, Now go and figure it out. Do I have to do everything? You need to stay here with us, said Amelia Gone Kelly, to keep you focused on the strict, absolutely no migration policy. That sounds familiar. Okay, just don't call me an empty vessel again. We won't. Doesn't sound right, said the Commander-in-Chief. And you guys keep whispering in my ear, always with the whispering. Tiva settled into one of his pouty, pouty moods. The Stephen Miller saw another chance to press his boss. Oh, no, dear. What if it made it worth your while? Excuse me. You don't have that many molola leaves. I'm not talking molola mola. Stephen Miller and his lecturer's drooling sneer now had the melancholy's attention too. How would you like someone else whispering in your ear? Tiva. Rump leaned forward. It's been so long and so expensive, groaned the Minigun Kelly. T-Rump didn't bat an eye. They were referring, of course, to the Stillman Dullinals, an attractive pornodactyl from the Vainus Mattress Alley, a dozen years before she had tickled more than T-Rex's fancy. More to do so. Make it so, he said with a smug smile. And don't forget to tell t Marla. I'm flogging. Of course, said the Mean Geller Gun Kelly. He turned and potted out of the meeting, visibly shaken. He now had to feel that Stormy Daniel's pretty little head with his talking points and unknown senses was she to whisper in T Rex's ear. Tail wagging or not, the chief of staff shook his head in frustration. He he was he, how he was having to trust a lowly pornodactyl. He was getting ridiculous, the things he had to do to keep the milk and honey preservation shut down. Day 376, the Donna McGowan says no. What the, what do you mean, no? The trumpet forest looked apodictic. What I'm saying, said the oval-dwelling legal dino, the Don McKellian, is that if you fire the Mellorus every Donkey's and by darling Dino, from here to the Watergate Strait will revolt unconditionally. It's called obstruction ob- of justice. It's called fighting back. It's called a death march, said the Rodentorius scene under his breath. I don't believe this, said the tea rump. Are the cotton picking and the pluck- poo-drucking chicken the only dinos who defend me? The remaining dinosaur in the den, the sentient scene since an opossum considered raising a short arm, but thought a bit of it, a T-Rump would only jump up and down on him, repeatedly recusing himself from the investigation. You've been telling me for, no for months, said T-Rump. I hate that word. This, hasn't nothing changed? Collusion, conspiracies. Just um, go away, said Don Corium. Hey, you're on my team, remember? There's no collusion, no conspiracy. Why the T-Rump scanned the ground? Something small and insignificant. He spotted an acorn. There must be a chance of conspiracy here, as this acorn having a monopoly on stereotypes. And the other dinosaurs had no idea what was terrible it was. They sighed and wrote it off as another confetti. The session on Porium sought an end to the awkward moment. Unfortunately, the Minimus Lives such a squeaky life, we are unable to add the three bones of contention, i.e., our entire conflict of interest 
case against him. Refresh my memory, said a bored T-Rump. Well, you said when the minerous goes flogging, he's a terrible backswing. You remember, you're awful. Yeah, just awful, the T-Rex. The worst the world has ever seen, that one. He's also once grazing in the same grassland as your son-in-law, the Crushing Gorotops, though they never came in within a mile of each other. Close enough, that's two. And the Minimurus was actually asked to return to the top job with Lengelops the day before he became head honcho and must call him Buff's investigation. Here you have it, said T. Rump, staring down at Don, Don, Don McGonagall. That's free. Go ahead. Off you go. Fire him. Oh, not. I'll quit. I'll quit first. Don't stumble on your way out. Stumbling is for losers. Dermagrum picked up a couple of rocks. He partially to it and turned to exit. Wait, said Tyrone. Okay. I'm kidding. Dermagrum stopped, stopped and turned around. I'm kidding too. I'm only going to do the ne- I'm going to the next end to see my legal donor. Oh, well, be sure and ask him who he voted for. The, okay. Dominican wailed waddled out before fly, without flying. Made way to a short den in short distance away. T Rump's newly operated opened grand backwash barrows where were only steps away from the old dwelling had plenty of dens available for the political powerful in the Polar D Plugs Reservoir. The Dominican entered the den and stopped in his tracks. His eagle diner, the built Buchan from the Quinn Manual Liberer, was not alone. The Bennett Bennett Duncan and the P bus un pre in the bus under the bus were also in attendance. Uh I thought we were alone, said Donovan. Oh that my low low rate. I quoted you. Not a chance, said the Billabuck. I'm killing a pair of periodactyls. This one, you've got a discount and we'll keep your st- your story straight. Don't tell the T-Rump, but I'm, I'm a stable genius too. But you can't present us at the same time, said the Domagoran. It's flies in the face of attorney client privilege. We must be, you need confidential meetings. Discount story straight, said the Bill Buck. Who's calling the shots here? The Domagoran shared wonder, looked, looked with the pre, pre, the bus, Bus and the bus. Fear not, fellow dinos, said the back, back of Colonel. I'm only here because I stirf- it was stirring some, and we were able to speak, leak. I mean, speak to the media circle tops about our confidentiality, of course. More worried between, more worried looks between Donegan, the pre bus and the bus, and the audible swallowing gulps. Aussie Mark Podcast Show presents Cookie the Frog by Gerald Wilson Cookie and the Blue Bowl I'm a little brown frog swimming in the water. A little brown frog doing what I order. Out I climb, I jump into a lily pad. I make a splash and it makes me glad that I am a little brown frog. One day, a long, long ago, 
there lived a brown, little brown frog called Croaky, who lived in a happy and contented life in a small pond to the rear of an old man's world and let to get his garden. And other than an old man, Fred was his name. No one ever ventured anywhere near the pond. This suited Croaky just fine, for he preferred the solitary life he all night day long. He was free to be anything he wanted to be. It was swimmingly happy in the still waters, lazing him out on any one of the many litter pads scattered across the water's top, or simply hiding beneath one of the marginal plants where he would sleep the day away, or if he so inclined. The old man also lived a rather solitary life, both his relatives having long since passed away. The only ones still alive were his younger sister, Edith, and her son, and an only child, going by the name of Brutus, who visited him twice yearly as regularly as clockwork. Apart from them, no one ever came anywhere near to his front door. Like the frog, they suited Fred down to the ground. Our story begins with one sunny Summer's afternoon, with Croaky sitting on his favourite lily pad, enjoying the sun while lying in wait, watching the flies buzzing to and fro over the pond, hoping that no that one of them landed nearby, or at least slowed down enough to allow him the opportunity to score, secure his next meal. There was no, but there were so many flies flitting around, Croaky didn't know which one of them to watch. They made, he, then he heard a sound, a low droning buzz quite different to the usual insect sounds he had become accustomed to hearing. This one was an altogether more coarser sound. Tilting his head over to one side, Croaky tried to hear it clearer. It was a fly, it's quite certain that, but so different from when he had up until that uh, had up until then heard. As he continued to listen, the sound grew louder and louder, so loud Croaky imagined must be the mother of all flies coming in his way as he waited for it to appear. His tummy growled. Hurrying him, how hungry he really was, sitting stock still, croaky, dead, not with a muscle. At least he'd scare the meal away before he had even seen it. As the fly, if that was what it really was, came closer and closer, the sound from its wing continued to grow louder and louder. So loud, croaky began to get scared, wondering if he might end up being hunted. Instead of the hunter, then it appeared a large, blue-coloured fly, the likes of which he had never seen before. As he gazed up and at it in wonder at the fantastically beautiful, indecent, shining blue fly, the blue bottle, Kogi's eyes never left it, watching with a glowing, glowing curiosity. He, he, he threw the poor thing. Must have been tired or old, or perhaps even stupid, because it saturated over to the pond like it owned the place. Maybe he thought that it was far too big to be considered a presidential mule, but any frog continued to saunter over the pond like he didn't care, the world, and didn't have a care in the world. Blue bottle grew closer, flew closer and closer to Croaky. His lips lit dribbled saliva, thinking of mother old meals coming to him, a meal that would surely keep him going for a while. 
over weak. It was now so loud, low, and so close. Grogy felt that he had no other option than going for it, with his tummy growing, glowing, glowing, growling. Crokey leapt into action, shooting his frog tongue with lightning speed at the mother of all flies. He missed it. He actually missed it. And more particularly than that, Lovod appeared not to have even noticed the attack. Crokey was still in with a chance, squatting lower. Crokey flattened his body against the lily pad, wishing he were a green frog and not a brown one. All of a sudden, the blueprint will set off in a different direction, away from the pool, towards the top of the garden and the old man's house. His heart sank to begin and been, had been so close to such a grand meal that only lose it to it so carelessly was unforgivable. Feeling more blue than brown, Crokey slipped off the lily pad and began swimming across the water's edge. The magical plants beneath, beneath which he could hide, where he could sleep and forget about the misty meal, his growling, empty tummy. Clambering out the water, he found a cool, damp spot beneath one of the plants, a large, blue, hoisted hoster, where, closing eyes, he drifted off to sleep. When he woke, he had no idea how long he'd been actually been sleeping. Crokey listened to the sounds of the flies and insects buzzing about outside, wishing that one, just one of them, would be in, were in his empty tummy, though he's so hungry. He had no intention of going out into the heat of the day. No, he would, would wait until later when the heat was diminished. Only the, then would he return to the pond and attempt to secure his supper. So closing his eyes once again, Crokey drifted off to a blissful slumber, dreaming the one and who one that the one, the huge one that had got away. The end. Crokey spoils meets a terribly spoiled child, or even a brown fog still in the water. A little brown frog doing what I ought to, not out to jump on the lily pad, or he jump back in and makes me glad. That I am a little brown frog hiding from bold Brutus. On one, on one of those gloriously warm and sunny days that we we so enjoyed during our childhood, Crokey the Frog was sitting in his favourite lily pad, without a care in the world. And why wouldn't he? He was happy. He was so happy to be alive, knowing how fortunate he was having was in having a wonderful pond all to himself, when no more one ever bothered him or came anywhere near, apart from the old man, Fred, who lived in the house in top of the garden. And then, even when he came, it, it was only passing, he took his weekly jump through the garden, shooting out his tongue with incredible speed at a flying insect, a hoverfly. Crokey caught it all too easily, and pulling it in, he began munching contently on the unfortunate creature. He thought that must surely be his lucky day, especially since he caught another three of those dainties and morsels within a few mi- many minutes. And perhaps it was his lucky day. God knows how difficult it would be. It can often times be for a small frog to secure him a decent meal. So Crokey enjoyed his time of contentment, relaxing on the lily pad while soaking in the warm sunshine rays. Yet again, perhaps he was lucky. Having no inkling, no idea, however, what, however the unfortunate turn of events will emerge, especially for him. It's an August bank holiday. Monday, Fred read, 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 read it himself. 
readied himself for a biennial visit of his sister Edith and only son Brutus. He really dreaded this day and counted to his climax for a good three weeks before he actually arrived and all the while wishing that it was over and done with. Now, and don't, don't get me wrong, Fred felt no animosity to his sister and in his particular way he, he even liked her a bit but he didn't like and indeed feared was her son, a spalt son, Brutus, who may considered a waste of time and utter abomination of a child. He was right, Brutus, being an only child, been spalt rotten during his entire life. There's simply no other words to go anywhere near in describing how bad his child actually was. Hello, Edith, said Fred, as he opened the door to his sister, an abomination, a son. Fred never personally addressed Brutus by name, having received too many insults when he had followed this practice. He long since given up, varying to ignore the scandal, the best as he was able. During an hour or so, his sister allotted to him twice weekly. You don't... Why don't you young watch it go into that garden? He discreetly asked. He handed his sister a nice cup of tea. You always enjoyed it out there. Gardens of Arthur Moron, said Brutus, picking up his uncle's prize carriage cup from the painter piece and fingering it with as much care and decorum as one might bestow a lump of gold. Here's a dear, said Edith, lifting her cup, sipping her tea so daintily one that would have been forgiven that she thinking she was of old descent. And he's always had an eye for fine things. See how interested he is in your clock. Brutus was interested in the clock, all right. So interested, he tried to pry open his back open, the use of his butter knife carelessly damaging the screws. The back of the clock is to be sued, his invention, as much determination as Hitler invading Poland. Ah, see how he has opened it, said his mother, smiling radiantly as a stoked son. He always was a bright spark, knowing a mark about sparks for fear of turning fate a bit too much. Fred watched his nephew's actions with a growing temptation, worried for his favourite clock. Suddenly there was a loud twang, like a sound of a spring breaking. After skipping a beat, Fred's house shrunk, sank. Brutus stared in the clock's innards, like a street cleaner might look in a heart transplant patient's body, for the new one was inserted. Taking the clock and trying, but with no success, to close the little door on his back, Edith returned it to the mantelpiece, where it sat oddly, his screw from the wall. Now you go inside, like, like your uncle, as suggested. Take a nice trowel around the garden, she said, patting her son on the head. You never know what you might discover while you're out there. He growled, Brutus growled, protesting, and as much about the pat on the head or being told what you should do, but with the little else but with little else than house to amuse him and small trowel made his way out to the garden. God, it's a mess, he complained as he wandered around the build wandered away from the building. Even worse than last year. It was true, the garden was an absolute mess. Fred, however, preferred to call it well gone. The native wildlife took prentices to anything else. 
Bridger still called it a dump. It was been fifty if he had been fifty or sixty years younger, Fred would most likely have agreed with the troublesome kid. His garden was akin to a dump, but with missing time passing a time and so many years the old man saw the garden including his the world including his garden in different light than the distant heyday of his youth. He long gone long since given up on turning his patch to greenness, which is usually considered a conventional way. And at the ripe old age of 84, he was quite happy to let it look after itself, allowing the many shrubs, flowers and tresses and plants to fight it out with the opportunist weeds and to let the better plant win, be it weed or cultivator. Outside, somewhere within the overgrown garden, Brutus kicked an old watering can from out of its path, banged it and clattered it and disappeared in a lush undergrowth. He laughed, thinking how easy every, every item of his ancient uncle's personal possessions, including the furniture, could be lost within the wilderness of a garden he was in, as if someone felt so inclined to be such a nasty thing as he battered away further down the plot. Bruce has felt more like an explorer than a child in a suburban garden, discovering all manner of things long since forgotten, passing a time. Stubbing his toe on a rock, he let out a yell, displaying his utter arrogance that he had been unable to spot it through the jungle with his eccentric uncle and the odyssey to the call for garden. Dearie me, said Edith, I do hope my darling's all right. Fred said nothing. Then he smiled because his mind's eye is imagining all the manner of terrible, frightening things happening to the bold child. Like being stunned by a wasp or tripping over that pile of old flower pots, he'd been meaning to move away from the path, perhaps at yonks. Or better still, standing on a rake and getting the handle straight up into his face. Yes, that was one. It was perfect. He smiled again. Fred, are you doing feeling okay? asked his sister. Because you're smiling in the most peculiar way. Returning to the present, Fred realised that he'd only been dreaming, but smiling again. He thought it better than nothing. Fred. Meanwhile, outside the garden, Spot Carl, picking up an offending rock, struggled under its weight, determined to push it. Can you actually push a rock? And being the cause of his pain, his big toe was still throbbing. He wondered, should he take his shoe off so he'd see if it was bleeding or was still broken? But we all know a child's mind can suddenly drift off in any direction, and so quickly. Brutus had no exception to this rule, seeing the glass of a long abandoned cucumber frame sparkling under the camouflage of a thick layer of brambles. He thought, what better way to kill two birds with one stone? You see, ever since the last time he had a visit, he had been tri- tipped over one of those spreading, all-prevailing shoots that were such plants were capable of reducing and falling into the fawny interior. Brutus had loathed all the things connected to blue blackberries, and this plant was his spooling, threatening plant, what most definitely a blackberry. Despite the huge weight of the rock, Brutus lifted it high above his head. One huge effort, he sent it flying from the air, where late seconds later it smashed into cucumber foam, like it was made of nothing more essential than balsa wood. Splinters of wood and shards of razor-sharp gla- glass sent hurtling away from the pulverized frame in every direction, caused absolute ma'am to the peaceful tranquility of the man-man mildness. Ha! Brutus, laughed Brutus, wiping his sweating brow. That'll teach it. Inside the house, Fred heard his, heard his noise. 
He once again began smiling, hoping for the worst. What is that noise? asked his sister, fearing for her precious son's safety. Thinking fast, Fred replied, I've been men. They also they also come on Mondays. But it's a bank holiday, said his sister, returning to her cup and saucer. They dedicated us at this this lot neck of woods, he replied. Worth every penny of the council. Money I paid no no one no one convinced me otherwise. Fred was a good liar. When it suited him, having completely forgotten about his offended big toe and happy to cause so much wanted destruction, the brutal child continued its vexations, its orientations of the wilderness garden. Seeing something glistening through all the tall glasses, glasses ahead of him, Brutus snatched his head and said, I wonder what it is. He battled his way through yet more of the troublesome and offending rumbles. He realised he had never before been in this far down the garden. This fact spurred him on, thinking he might find something of value, something the old man might have lost or that he could steal. Oh, he loved that word. He did it, said it again. Steal? I love to steal things. Passing through the last ramblings of phony rumbles, Brutus found himself in a sheltered refuge quite different from the rest of the garden. It was still wild, but so tranquil, hidden, secreted away from all eyes but his. The glistening thing he's seen, it was a wonderful watery oasis. Why, it's a pond, he said. Well, a pond with beautiful lilies, with flowers on them, big white ones. And for someone hated gardening, who really hated it more than anything else, Brutus actually found himself admiring it. It was only for a moment, mind you, only the briefest of a moment, in a short time in mind, nature, for the first time in his life. When this brief interlude was over, the problematic child regained his usual composure, his mind crackled in action, considered all the nasty things he could permutate on his calm oasis. He considered all sorts of terrifying things, like filling a pond up, many rocks lying scattered thoughtlessly around the about the place. Though he soon abandoned the idea, thinking it would be too much like hard work and far too akin to gardening, which, as I have already told you, he hated. Another idea he considered was to drain the pond without it. any obvious means of doing this dusty deed. He abandoned this idea, but he knew he had no head to do something. He would never forgive himself if he were to leave the pristine pond, saying addition if he had found it. And that, on what might his friends think if he were ever to find out, no, leaving it intact was out of the question. So, scratching his head, trying to spur on a few cells of grey matter he had lurking somewhere within it, Brutus struggled to formulate a plan of action. It took him a while, a good fifteen minutes, to come up with a plan of action, a planned attack of serenity displayed before him. And this plan, this brutal plan that Brutus had Formulated it was simply simplicity itself. You set fire to the pond by setting the whole area ablaze, thus boiling the murky green waters, willy lilies and all, creeping, sulking close to the railway edge. Brutus delved in his hand with one of his trouser pockets and pulled out his prized possession, his ten inch scope. For anyone reading this, who has no idea what this object is, I will briefly describe it. A ten in one scope. It's a fantastic bit of kit, a scientific instrument that no boy child should ever should be without. It's an instrument and it contains everything you could possibly need, such as a reading lens, compound microscope, adjustable telescope, focusing binoculars, a directional compass, a solar time clock, a flat mirror, magnifying cup mirror, a, a camp light firelighter, and a code transmitter. Like I said, it was everything a boy could ever need.
Finding the space that wasn't too overgrown, Brutus sat down next to the water's edge, and then carefully holding his scope. It took a few minutes to mire it. Of course, it's hidden potential. Then, then having done, he opened the scope, adjusting the magnification lens to the strongest setting. He's done. He's ready to begin to set fire to the whole area, destroy the pool, set up boiling its waters till there's no more than a steamy wafer. During all this time, while the bold and frighteningly spoke kid had been hatching his plot, a little brown frog, Crokey, was sitting in his lily pad, so still and so quiet, Brutus never even noticed him. The nutritive had no idea whatsoever that, that every move he had been making, everything he said, was being watched, studied and listened to by that secretive frog. Sitting about the field, about the foul Brutus grabbed hold of a few handfuls of dry glass, leaping heaving them into a small pile, then looking to the sky to see exactly where the sun was located, he lay in the magnifying lens with it. He soon would have his fire. With his tongue sticking out between his lips, his effect concentration, Brutus magnified the sun's rays a small white dot. Soon, faint wisps of smoke began to rise from the dry grass, laughing, blowing into a little pile of grass. He said, I'll soon have you burning. Despite his best efforts, the voice of faint whiffs of smoke soon disappeared. Drats, he moaned. I'll need more grass. So putting another a few handfuls of dry stuff, he molded it into a roughly shaped pyramid and began his process again. For the second time, faint whiffs of smoke drifted up from the grass, but unlike the first, he continued magnifying the sun's rays. Hell bent on producing the fire he so craved. It worked because all of a sudden a little pyramid burst into bright yellow flames. Ah! He laughed, clapping his hands of glee. Fire! Lots of it! He said, his mouth gulping wide as he laughed uncontrollably. This was the opportunity Crokey had been waiting for. Wasting no time, he shot out his lightning fast tongue, particularly large, fat fly, catching it easily instead of munching away. Happy an insect. Crokey spat it out, holding it with such full, some such force across the small space between him and the abomination of a child, Brutus. Because he was laughing and laughing so much, Brutus never stood a chance as the big bat fly whizzed past his lips, into his mouth and down his throat, and all before he knew it, that knew what was happening. Then it hit him, gulping in shock. Brutus stopped laughing. He just swallowed something. But what had it been? And where had it come from? Must have been a fire. What happened to fighting? He whispered. Then he felt his stomach, imagining what it was still alive, moving about inside him. But what if it's not a fly? He cried out. It might be something altogether more different and poisonous. Then his stomach again. He was sure he felt a growing pain within it. Tears began to well up in his eyes. Then he began crying. He yelled and yelled and he yelled. His cries were so loud, his dirty mother, all the way up in the garden, inside the house, immediately heard him, and thinking of her son was mortal danger, said, Oh my God, whatever it can be, mess of him, his mother Edith, soon found out that the problem was, because before she even had the chance to get off to a chair, a son came crashing through the doorway, yelling, Oh God, he's caught me, he's caught me. Fearing and worse, thinking that something terribly poisonous had in him, like a snake, she added, Oh, good, you might, boy, boy, my boy. Sorry, Brutus replied, a fly. I think it was a fly. It might be a poisonous one. His mum, threatening stop, replaced by contempt for her son. The son, he shown himself, 
so publicly be so stupid to be afraid of swallowing a simple everyday fly. And, that, and with that, she clipped him hard across the head, saying, Get your jacket and hat, and we're going home. And don't expect me to bring you here any more. I'm absolutely mortified at your disgraceful behaviour. After giving him another clip across the head, she grabbed her hold of one of his ears and yanked her son all the way down the hallway out for the front door. Edie was so busy scolding the son, she completely forgot to say goodbye to her brother Fred. He didn't mind, but in fact he smiled as he watched her mother. The son turned the corner at the end of the road and disappeared from sight. Then, looking up to the heavens, he thanked his God for, some very, for such mercies. What? You want to know what happened to the fire? That's easy enough to explain. Thinking, taking out a few mouthfuls of, of pond water, Crokey spat, spat out over the flames, easy quenching them. He's a resourceful little thing, isn't he? The Dog Behind Me by David Bell-Sayles One, he sucked gently at the bitch's teat, the warm milk coursing through the mind and body. The bitch was his mother, yet he felt no real attachment. He was still sorting things out. But his hunger made him even even that difficult. He sucked anew and was bumped from behind a growl he growled, turned and looked himself in the eye. There's no mirror. It was his brother or sister. He was still the discovery stage. He looked up, upside down. Up he looked himself up and down. He was a black Labrador pup receiver puppy. What the hell? What happened? He looked beyond his nursing nibbling siblings at his back surroundings. His newspaper paper, cage, pile of all cages inside an animal shelter. Hey, you got the wrong guy. Let me out of here, he barked. Only he came across a few sharp yelps, breaking the silent silence of the room. Not very effective. His mother nuzzled him, coaxing him to be quiet and keep it, kept sucking. He looked her in the eye. What am I doing here? He searching eyes asked her. How did I get here? It was any understood how dogs communicate. The questioning eyes and sixth sense effectively t- tuned their attention to a higher level. 
The dogs were able to speak with one another. The barks were merely for attention from humans. The eyes were for understanding. The message came his mother's eyes were clear. You're a dog, she said. You're a man's best friend now. But I was a man. You were a good man. Mother's could be tough. He looked her looked down at his fur claws. He couldn't answer that one. Couldn't he? Or didn't want to. But not yet. He went back to the sucking only the milk didn't taste as good. It tasted plain like his mother had scolded him to finish it at supper when he was Brian Joseph Belfair. And memories flooded back. He recalled his childhood born in nineteen thirty three in Iowa City. Iowa's family moved to Lincoln, what Nebraska. Was a young. His father had been a carpenter, once fell thirty feet off a child's steeple, and lived the Lincoln and lived the Lincoln General Star caption, claimed an astonishment out, complete with photo and arrows outlining the harrowing incident. His mother had been a tough woman. She hadn't fallen from any church evils, but he's sure she would take more than that to let to do to her in. His parents had wanted him to take something to make something like it, yet he's too stubborn to realise they were no different from any other well meaning mother and a father in cross corner house state. All he wanted to do want all he wanted to do oh, no, he only wanted to tell jokes, drink and Draw. His talent as an artist quieted the concerns. We earned some freelance work for the Journal Star, but his first foot as a academia petered out before two year, after two years at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. He lived in the, joined the Air Force and joined and was stationed in Waco, Texas, for two years stint learning communication systems. That was another job left undone. He wanted to be an actor. He saw the bright lights of Broadway. He was a sweet on a girl called going to Westgate. Her name was Valerie Gwynn. She would play the piano, sing like a bird, and trade Shakespeare bars with him long into the night. They were two crazy souls in love, but the prospect of rising a family in Lincoln appealed to neither. So she and Valerie, he and Valerie eloped to Miami, Oklahoma. Was it double whammy curse? Not choosing the son of Florida? Marrying instead the home state, the football rival, Ohio Sooners. No matter, they chased the Broadway floodlights, finding an apartment in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Green Park. They had three children, Jake, Braid, and Emily, in three years. How long was it before the joy of entertaining children changed to criminality, the dirty rind of the world closing on him? There were pressures of parenthood, long hours of being, doing freelance work at his drawing board. Pretty arguments that left him and Valerie drifting apart. Communication broke, broke down. He took another slurp, sour slurp from his new mother. Their marriage was crumbling. He wasn't the one to wait around. If something was going if it wrong, he demanded a quick fix. As sure as Kurt Steeple, his father tumbled off. He was a guiding force in his life principle. That was a way that things would be, a way that should be understood by all. Not profound, but surely the backbone to common sense. He reigned in a different memory, and seemed like straw yesterday when Prince was the straw that broke the camel's back. Valerie had been playing piano for the squire nearby church, taking the kids with her. He spent a day, long day putting together advertisement sea monkeys. He puzzled all day on whether to 
not to draw them with crowns or finally decided the crowns were to the amazing appeal that they had promised. Five o'clock, supper time, five o'clock came, and six o'clock, no Valerie, she finally rode home with the kids at six thirty. You fuming, where's my supper? you bellowed. It was supper that was at the church. That, that, that was it. Six words were six broadside sabers that sunk a three year marriage. Valerie read the ensuing silent treatment as well quite quite felt well. She packed up the kids and left. She didn't, he didn't ask what, where she was going. He didn't say. Their three children were left in the lurch. Swept under the carpet. He, hadn't, he wasn't much for housework. He tried to forget. The young pup rolled over and stared gloomily across the room at the pounding rain. Reincarnation could be a bitch. He had a family and fa- fa- home family once. He worked his tail off. Now he's working his way up to the dog tag. That was... That, well, was this some kind of punishment? Nothing against black dogs. But he couldn't be... This couldn't be heaven. He was a dog. He pushed away from his mother's side. He raised his head, looked at her support. Say, say something, anything. Tell me. I'm not a dog. You're not just a dog, she said with a smile. Her words gave him some comfort. He laid his head back into his paws and continued mulling over his predicament. He had plenty of time to think... What's this? What was that hallmark of being a dog? And think, and think he did. He remembered the years after Valerie left on his own, living in a bachelor life. No commitments, just him. Drawing board, a drawing board that waited for Louis. His one and only client, Louis, lived across the river in New Jersey. Word Julie, Julie sprang in Lev's ear. It was a loud, puppet refrain, followed by fellow bowlers at Lizzie Langs in Queens with a bowling ball missed the pocket badly, crossing over to hit the other side of Pinhead. Headpin, Louis had a living novelty toy industry. Everything was a gag to Louis, which is why he, the two split hit it off too well. Louis would show off his, uh, his door once a week to collect his work and give him a new assignment. It's a football season. He'd make a friendly $10 wage on the Jets game and at that weekend, Louis always took the Jets, but Brian was a Giants fan. He'd been a man with strong entrepreneurial skill spirit. He'd drawn up the plans for a gerbil jacket, a clear plastic apparel that allowed a pet gerbil to skillfully navigate the nooks and crannies of various feeding points, all while under the watchful eye and glee of the jacket warning warner. In the wake of the cheetah, cheetah pet craze, Brian had come up with a clay dot threesome of Tom. Dick and Harry, Harry being the grass green punchline at the end. Finally, there was a racket payable urine for long road trips for gas station washrooms. was a fleeting dream. He duly filed for parents for the evictions. Surely that accounted for something. This had been his life when he was a man. There was a, that phone call. Valerie called him for, from seven points. Wisconsin, four or five years later, she said the kids missed him. She said it in a tone that left him wondering if she missed him too, but the real reason stared been back in the face. He was be, behind in child's payments, about behind as one could get. He figured a trip to see his children would be some of the support, so he went. He stayed for a few days after Christmas holidays. There were a fair weather and conversation, a full and short, real probing. Valerie attended. Any attempts to reconsiderate quickly fell by wayside. He flew back to New York, hoping 
That was the end of the bitter end. That was the end of the bitter end. That was the end of the bitter end. But it wasn't. Nor when were they others when they were others of old. Jake called out the blue a couple of days, weeks before Easter, nineteen seventy-nine. He was eighteen and wanted to come and visit for a week. His mother mulled it over for a few seconds. Had he really been ten years, twelve years? He sorted years through his head, mind, trying to find his way back to Wisconsin. Remember Jake as a six-year-old. Brian said his resolve weakened, and to remember the eager eyes that helped. Abby's face and his son. He allowed pride to enter the good pride and swayed the conversation. He decided he couldn't pass judgment on a six-year-old. He agreed to let Jake come for a visit. By then, Brian Birdtree had climbed back two steps for every one down. A corporate letter to being the art director from Redmond advertising firm in Long City, Island City, or Lincecy as the locals called it, beside the swingling staples factory. You've seen a woman named Rebecca who had three children from a previous relationship. Rebecca was a kind, God-fearing woman who worked as a waitress in a diner in Metropolitan Alley. Brian came and went as he pleased, not really not ready, willing to dive into another family commitment that held all the trappings of a straitjacket. The visit with Jake was gone well. They shared an interest in the Yankees, and Brian saw flashes of himself and Jake. And Brian asked if he could come and live with him in New York. Once he finished high school, Brian didn't hesitate at saying yes. Years immediately melted away, but what what was left was something remotely akin to Norman Rockwell's freedom from want, painting of a holiday feast. Indeed, their Thanksgiving dinner was minus most of the family, but maybe this was as good as it got, Brian told himself. I was a good father, the pup told his brother. Definitely good, said his mother. He stayed, he stayed, he stayed with me. We were doing well. What happened? The fun was over. The speed bumps, they just added up. The pup remembered how very he loved the, the cruise. On London, the vi- on street to Lincoln's residence, called it Longest Street. In American America, Lincoln had no ring road. So 180 Capital ran straight through the capital city by O Street, effectively joining the country's coast. He swore Valerie would cruise O Street for hours. And it all all up and she'd probably done the coast-to-coast route. That's what he wanted, life to be smooth, strip of the highway. But every problem with Jake began a, became a pothole to avoid, effectively sidetracking his life. It was not long before detour signs that eventually le- le- led to the exit ramp. We only stay for six months, said the pup. He, he got a quiet, loving gaze, never left him. He's warming up to her. He'd never seen it, been able to put those faults in his words. But now as a dog, he could see his new understanding, mental magnifying glass, simply by look, looking at other dogs in eyes. The pup knew, his mother knew, they spoke without speaking. What can I say? I was 18, and he was, and he was wide-eyed at New York. Would you, how do you know? She smiled back at him. He was impressed. She was a bitch, a dog and a woman. He didn't wash his dishes. He went on and make, didn't make his bed. Well, while, while you were in the military, and when my bed always made, how did you know I was in the military? I'm your mother. A pup pulls. He was just beginning his canine doctrine, but already knew it's unwise to question someone's mother. He felt out of sorts of his element that caught in some transition phase between humanity and dogdom. To many questions he sorted out, 
thinking, trying to figure out how he could get get how he got here and why. He was a work of printing, course, like a two unfinished still life paintings on the wall of his new York apartment. He may be a dog now, but his male instinct of independence meant Chizuno stepped to its fall. He came back to life as a mutt. He must be, may have some significance. Maybe put, but he strived to gain respect of any kind, even a conversation of his failings of previous life. Her eyes found his. You gave me him the silent treatment, he said. Didn't you? He sh- shouldn't. He should have known. He's not a dog. He's not a dog. Dogs know. Is that what we do? Is that why I'm here? Is it, it's just the beginning? The pup looked at his back leg. He was trembling. All of a sudden, he had to, be, had to go pee. It's clear to him he's only six weeks old. Finish it, though, said his mother. But you know, you already know it. It's important that you know it. Your young, the young pup sighed. Jake got tired of being ignored and flew back to Calgary. He. Called a few times, but I, did, I was rather short with him. You couldn't wait to get him off the phone. It's a principle, principle what being or doing. You know, no, I'm afraid I don't. You're going to have to spell the out for me. I'm doing the right thing. He paused and took in the apartment with low light. Have you gained religion? You simply gave yourself the oath once over. I don't think of it so. The incarnation of religion. I'll never get the memo. I never got the memo. What do you mean, know about doing the right thing? Another hot, well, tough mother question. He looked at her. Hard eyes, puppy eyes would not allow. They've left, they've all left. There, he said it. Or he hadn't felt better. His pride had always been able to send loneliness to any corner of the room. Rock of royalty, no cracks, no emotions, no weakness. He would be the rock of dogs. He pulled, something was stirring inside, not indigestion. It felt weird, like he was going to puke and laugh out loud, out lo- laugh out loud at the same time. He loved to looked at his mother. What's going on? It's called compassion. You're kidding. But he, did, he knew he, she wasn't. It was a warm and fuzzy feeling. It enveloped him, making him faint, pant slightly, and nozzle into mother's warm fur. He rolled his head over to look at her, uh, look up at her. I was wondering if you could tell me something. What's that? Am I going to be... be am I going to like being a dog? Did you learn anything from being human? Not to pick the free play players parallels, he frowned, shaking his head. Shaking head. I'm sorry, her mood softened. You might think of being a dog as some kind of punishment. With a man to look up to. Think of it as an opportunity. What? Bob's eyes gaze ever so slightly, picking up a whisper in the wind. I know about your past, he said, but no dog can predict your future. Future and past, the two words tied the two worlds together. His head and his thoughts raced back to his final days as upright walking man. Brian Belvoir, her pacemaker, is in fact only his doctor and veterans association knew about. Only Brian knew her forever about the mooses he piled upon his heart over the years. He played while playing pool at my place, his daily old Haunt in Brooklyn. His choice, drink of choice was then being blackberry brandy with cha- beer of chaser. His diet was taking his takeaway and pizza. Remaining problems were stress related and, and they were many. From the time he moved to New York 22 years before, he constantly bl- lived from paycheck to paycheck. He quit jokes and principle twice without having another job to go to. He reluctantly entered a relationship with Barb, a brunette he met at my place, but he refused to move in with her as you can seeing another pole play in my place. He gashed his teeth at his snips of his blackberry brandy, but it jakes her. He watched him across the bar. He lay in bed on the football game that he could watch 
watched the TV. Often he stormed out of his apartment in the third courtroom after a bad play, blown call from the official. Calls from Jacob pointed their toll at him, but it reached a point that everyone, every time the phone rang, his heart skipped a beat. His pacemaker recalibrated in smog of disgust, guilt and shame. He still bowled in two leagues a week, but his average had dipped down to 180. In fact, it interested him no end. He wanted to make a bite, take a bite out of the bowling ball. Pat remembered his last meeting with the doctor in New York. The doctor, in a state of professional numbness, closed the door and returned behind his desk. There had been no ideal chatter on the Yankees' starting rotation or latest Broadway musical. You've got to leave, said the doctor. But I have just got here. No, I mean you've got to leave New York. Brian leaned back in his chair. He was stunned. New York was his home. Yankees, the Giants, New York Times Square. The city never sleeps. It was a buzz that they kept in life, a skyline that had been... His skeleton for twenty years, it fit him like a glove. He would dine in different restaurants every night and see them in all in the lifetime. Which was which was how long do you, do I have, Doc? Ten years. If you stay here, twenty if you go somewhere else and start eating right. It was only twenty forty six, five times in Fast City, New York had chewed me up. Time to spit up, spit out. Him out. Any recommendations, Brian said and he'd been to Montreal for a gateway. We came into Columbus, Ohio, for the bowling camp. It was a good VA hospital in San Diego. San Diego he was. Packed his bags and put a flight out to Luganda next week. He arrived in San Diego on February 19, 1980. Sun and surf had placed the damp city city chills. Next day he rented a small house at Birch Street, half a dozen blocks from the Navy base. The sea breeze whistled past... He no more bone stones walking up, walk-ups running the length of the block, a bona fide elbow room. His glass needed to be welded. he have to learn how. He plopped his bag inside the front door and started set back outside the lock of the door. He waited to check out the neighbourhood and stroll over to the naval base. He stopped at the Granado Taco Shop for short-shell taco and Coke, stepping back in the sunshine, he shielded his eyes. He needed sunglasses at some point. He had, been, he had lived in the shadows of New York. San Diego it was. He's packed his bags and put a flight out of Lagoando next week. He arrived in San Diego on February 19, 1980. The sun and surf replaced the damp and dry big city chills. The next day he rented a small house on Birch Street, half a dozen blocks from the naval base. The sea breeze whistled past. He no more brooms so walk ups running the blo- length of the block. He had a bona fide elbow room. His grass needed to be watered. He had to learn how. Cupped his bags inside the front door and stepped back in- outside to lock the door. He wanted to check out the neighbourhood and stroll over to see the naval base. He stopped at a grill taco shop to- for small shell taco and coke. Stepping back in the sunshine, he shielded his eyes. He needed sunglasses at some point. Had he lived in the shadows in New York? And neither base he bought a ticket for a tour. Minutes later, he was standing on a small tour group before one of the 46 ships of the Pacific Fleet, one, of the very, one, one for every year of his life he moved. A female tour guide launched into a sunny disposal spiel. This is the USS Independence, a neutral combat ship class. I say it's liberal, Brian said. I mean, it's standing right there. It was a giggle and a few moans groans from the group. Two guys smiled sweetly.
Brian made an enormity of the ship. It looked like a stealth bomber, minus the wings and water. The dull, giant, grey sides angled from the pointed spell of the boat, reaching at midship, then angling wider, reaching the full rectangular breadth width of the boat, running from midship to stern. This is a military presence that keeps us safe, thought Brian. He remembered these days in Waco, at the air but false base. All boys wanted to fly, its freedom unrestricted. All of a sudden he felt a sharp pain in his chest. Was it something he ate? Damn Taco. He might not, he might too much hot sauce. The boy, kid in the counter warned him, but Brian knew he, he, it was worse. He was having an honest-to-God, kicking-your-ass heart attack. He clutched the most tumbling in the dock. He watched the tour ticket fall from his hand, fluttered down toward the water. The tour guide rushed forward. He remembered looking at her, wondering how, where her smile went, how she, how she shouldn't be sad as such a sunny day. He was losing it. He deep fog. Someone shouted, heart paddles. What did they mean, paddles? For... Then there was a shipwright right there. Brian Joseph Browder passed away in bright February day in the shadows of USS Independence. Vianne An Assassin's Love Toil Part 1 A Queen Lucy A Universe Novel by Vanna Lee VMN and Assassin's Love Tale, Part 1. Chapter 1. Sometimes a yearning sits just beneath my skin, like a minute swarm of butterflies that rustle up and down my body. My arms are the worst, my legs a solid second. It's infectious but terrible, like when someone tickles you far too long. You want nothing more than to slash their throats to get them to stop. I knew I was past down from the people who created me, even from a firm hand that forged it into something even deadlier. Cells in the blood of every aerial demon sang for murder. It was the only thing that quietened it. Even that didn't last long. It had been worse lately, because I was on edge. I didn't want to love the relief that running my dagger through someone's gut brought, but I did, for the love of hell. The thought of it made my stomach flip-flop and appreciation in the interpretation. Killing was my drug. I had to force the shivers to steal as I watched the queen step up on a dais and plop a bottom into the black and gold throne. For the first time we had been governed by a woman, and not just any woman. She had been raised on earth. If you listen, you can hear murmurs and equal share praising of her Helpful enthusiasm for that what someone like her could bring to hell, and other half terrified and spitting venomous threats because of the change she surely represented. You always had people like that, though. It was my responsibility to weed them out and make them sh- make sure they're nothing more than idle gossip. Glib was sitting on my right in the chair that no one had dared to move after she was ordered it placed there. When she first arrived, it was off-centre, legs angled just enough to make me crazy, but I had bigger matters to fret about. Once she sit, situated herself in the black velvet seat, she scanned the crown. Her gaze stopped once. She found me. 
and smile and eyes filled with warmth. I saluted and suppressed my own grin. Liking a, a gushing fangirl would do no favours in my job to protect her. There was a couple of times when I when I, I considered explaining myself or opening up to her, but I, it just wasn't there yet. She didn't seem to hold it against me. Another reason she won my fierce loyalty so quickly. I made my way to her. I overheard a group of Morins engrossed in a petty conversation about her mannerism, how she was too human to rule. I made a beeline for them and pulled out one of my daggers and sheathed my thigh. I stood behind them and pretended to pick my front teeth with its pointed lethal point. Everyone around them shifted anxiously, but the chattering buffoons seemed to enfold in their bullshit, sensually hovering presence. They finally halted, if over vomit long enough to notice me. One arsehole jumped a foot in the air, another flung himself down and started begging. He rested on his knees with his hands clasped before him like he was praying to a god who couldn't hear him here. We didn't mean no offence, assassin. We're only old men who've forgotten how to keep our mouths, our thoughts out of our mouths. I raised my chin and squinted at him. Doesn't, I don't know, I, I, if you don't do better, I'll shove my bat- dagger through your eye and solve your problem for you. Glancing away the pathetic man, I saw the green frown. That goes for all of you. Is that clear? Heads nodded viciously. I was pretty sure the guy who was begging had just pissed his pants. Good for him, because if that was one thing I didn't do, it was fuck around. When I was sober from killing, it was quite a while. I ha- wouldn't hesitate to give it, give, give it, give in. Give in for Lucy. I did. Ha- I slid my ba- dagger back into its sheath and nearly laughed. When it all jumped again, when I turned and headed to explain my actions, our new queen didn't appreciate murder that way. The way I did, and while I don't, I didn't think she'd stop me if it was necessary. It wasn't her disposition to threaten people readily. We have to eradicate the problem before it turns into more than talk. I said to her, knowing full well she was going to say. A scrunched eyebrow stressed her worried frown. We've discussed this for him. I don't want you threatening people just because they stand against the go- gossiping. We have dangerous, bigger dangers to focus on. This is the beginning of the big, bigger dangers, Your Majesty. I threw a finger in the, their direction. I watched them flinch. A collected set of eyes wouldn't move for me until I walked away. Then the Queen sighed loudly. She had a knack of a dramatic way of getting herself into trouble, which is secretly dawdled. Liam, I love you, but you make me... St- that sometimes I had no intention of arguing. I would not, did not want to make it. Didn't want, would not do what it took. I would, I would do what it took to protect her, no matter what. I nodded, saying nothing else. Her attention moved to Glib. He moved. He moved. He seemed to an extra excitable today. The little guy was growing on me. You know, I wanted to kill him when he ran circles round the whole place. To be fair, he wasn't to blame. His disposition was no more than his fault. My murder cravings were mine. Plus, he's good for Lucy, even though he fu- she fussed about his overwhelming personality, too. She always did it with a smile on her face. She would never say anything mean to hurt his feelings. She's good like that, our new queen, with a history of her former arseholes on the throne. With no wonder people were panicking at the changes. It was firmly 
upset them, upset them. They're enterprises which should be fueled by superiority and enslaving everyone beneath them for centuries. I waited the day when Lucy understood union workings are caught life and put an end to it. But she was also right. We have bigger things to worry about than at the moment. Someone was trying to take her position and kill her and those she cared about. If, if that happened, we'd, we'd be even worse off than when her grandfather ruled with a blind eye. Lucifer wasn't necessarily evil, okay? He was evil until he, until he wasn't. And when he got lazy and tired, leaving the message about her man, created so much of the bullshit, I guess I couldn't blame him. If I had been alive since nearly the beginning of mankind, I'd probably need a damn nap and break from all this. Two. Then something caught, else caught my eye. The same man that had been hovering behind the phone, to, like he wanted something, was back. Every day he showed up and stood there, staring at the queen like starving underling. Occasionally, somehow, someone would approach him and speak a few words. He nodded down politely, and then, he mo- then they moved off. He never f- felt, he was never fully engaged with them, but just, just not being polite enough to not bring too much attention to himself before dismissing each one. I walked in his direction, my frustration, the gossip between twits still dancing around in my belly. Side of Wrong by Tess Burnside It's supposed to hurt. Courage is being scared to death and doing it... Anyway, Anonymous, Chapter 1. Please, stop, it hurts. Shut up, you stupid bitch. It's supposed to hurt. Joy, once again, Joy glanced briefly at her purplish skin and winced. Another day of wearing heavy matte makeup. She normally doesn't want to use any at all, but she figured if she would have, thought, have to have for at least the next few days or so, she carefully wound her long, long brown hair to bun the nape of her neck and put in a couple, a, lar- a couple of large bobby pins to hold it in place. She gazed at herself again, pouring some liquid makeup into a cosmic sponge wedge and gently blotting the statued statued sponge into her chin. It transformed the blue and purple marks into a fake pale skin tone colour. She poured more low liquid in the sponge web and gently dabbed it into her right cheek and eye, stopping several times and wincing as it was just too painful to do quickly. She opened a new package. Of pressed powder and palest ivory, they sold at the grocery store in the town and rubbed a small powdered puff into circular motion to pick up the colour. Joyce eyed her appearance for a long time. Her deep brown eyes looked back at her almost mockingly. Mocking. She looked at so pale and thin, almost thickly. At least the parts of her that weren't bruised. She tried to remember last time she didn't have to put makeup. Put on makeup. She couldn't recall. It seemed that no sooner did the bruises heal and she would get hit again. She peered again at the dark, mocking eyes staring back at her. She almost felt like hurt, hurling something in response to their taunting. She thought about the reason why she got hit, 
hit by him this time. His dinner got cold. At least she thought that was it. She couldn't be sure about it. It's, it's not like he needed a reason to beat her. At least not any any more. She warmed his food for him. We arrived three hours late without com, com, comment or comment. Maybe the food wasn't warm enough. Maybe it was too warm. Maybe he didn't like the lasagna anymore. He claimed he was he was at a job and got delayed there, but Joy knew better. David had been had trouble sticking to one woman. There had been many so or so she suspected. At times in the past, Joy felt scared we might give her some kind of disease. These days she didn't care. So what if she died from STD? So much better to be out of this horrible world. Back of the mind, however, she suspected he had another woman up north somewhere. Been seeing her for a while now, though she didn't know who she was. All intimacy between David and Joy had ceased, but the beatings didn't. She believed that she was being true to the new woman. She wondered when he would break it off of her, be with the other woman for good, and hoped against hope it should it could it sh- would be soon. Joy called the one time which had she had confronted Dave about it. His reply was more than just a black white for trouble. Dave had busted free of four of a rip, free of her ribs, tied her face down to the bed whipped her entire body with his belt and violated her in every orifice. He did not free her until she understood that what he did was his business. It seemed to her he loved beating her more than he claimed he loved her. It used to be that shortly after David beat Joy, he would shower her with gifts of flowers, candy and jewellery. It got to the point that the most severe the beating, the range of the gifts she would expect. She never stood why. In time, even the gifts stopped. She looked down at her left hand and wondered why all the things he gave her had never, he, he never gave her a wedding ring. Even this didn't make her feel sad, as it had, as it once did. She used to look at the jewellery. Sometimes she put them, some of it on. Shortly after trying it on, she wouldn't find herself shaking and crying, remembering she had to endure. To have such a grand prize, she ended up putting all the baubles in a small wooden box hidden beneath the bed, hidden but not forgotten. Joy used to be in love with Dave, or so she thought. For the longest time she was certain that she deserved his treatment, that she must have offended Dave in some sort of way, or did something wrong that would warrant him being so angry with her. She only wanted to please him. Now she wasn't so sure. She was tired of enjoying all those so-called love. Joy was tired. I want to die, Joy whispered as she continued to gaze at herself, not really believing it was her anymore. She felt the tears well up in her eyes, immediately blinked, and back, not wanting her makeup to run. No, I cried enough, she said through quivering lips. She didn't want to think about Dave anymore. She finished setting the makeup with a press. Pound and smoothed a bit of cherry lip gloss into her lips. 
that will have to do. Joey got, got the lip gloss, liquid makeup, pressed powder and sponge into a plastic sandwich bag and tossed it into her backpack. She didn't carry a purse, a backpack was more practical anyway, especially when riding a bike. She didn't have a driver's license, she used a bike everywhere. She went. Joy checked once more that her uniform's right. There would be no more there would have to be no there would be no more improvement on her face today. Maybe tomorrow, she said with breath as she pulled her aching arms through the backpack straps. Joy headed into the kitchen. She had already boxed up the pies she baked the day before and thought throughout the night. Some of the pies are still warm. If she didn't if she couldn't bake, she would probably lose her mind. Baking gave her purpose. So everyone in town said they loved her pies and other goodies. She bagged up ten of the pies, five in each of two canvas bags. She hung on the back of it one of the two chairs in the donut and headed down towards the back door where her bike was parked. She put the canvas bag and the basket between behind the seat. They went back into the house for the other five stacked on the counter. She eased out of the back door, pulling it close to the lock and placed the pies in the basket in front of her bike. She hopped on the bike and started pedaling for Third Street. Joy thought about Dave's departure as yesterday morning. He wound, he wound, he wounded her long braided hair in his hand, pulling it tight and ordering her to pick him for more. This is his game. He wanted to hear her say she loved being hit by him, but she couldn't say it, arranging him further. This time, he just beat her instead of assisting and left her on the floor, weeping. It was around 2 a.m. when David finally left. When Dave finally left. She tried to sleep where she lay, but sleep eluded her. She slowly made her way to the bathroom and drew herself a cold bath before bath, having to let out the water several times because of all the blood. She eventually got her nose to stop bleeding. She emerged from the tub. She knew where the bruises would be. Thank God that her clothing covered most of them. Her face is another story altogether. She dried off quickly and put on a soft, loose-fitting nightgown. She she tried to sleep in her bed, but sleep still wouldn't come. Then sleep eluded her, as it often did. She baked pies and other treats. It was there she found her solace. She baked ten peach pies and five apple pies for the course of the day into the night, finishing in the early morning, boxing them up after they were called. Louis, the owner of the hometown cafe, Corring, gets all the ingredients home so on, eagerly gives them to Joy where, whenever she needs them and pays her for the finished product. She figured out if she couldn't sleep, she'd bake. The fruits of labour now decorated the front and back of her bike. The fragrance were invis- irresistible. Pies would sell fast. M- most would be, still be sold well before the calf closed at 2.30pm. Before she knew it, she arrived at the calf. She parked the bike next to the street sign in front of but didn't lock it. Joy carefully moved some of the canvas bags from the rear basket and then removed the five pies from the front basket. Then she pa- backed into the calf door, pies in hand. Louis shouted something from the kitchen. But she didn't unst- didn't understand him. When he came out, he had a spatula in one hand and a rag in another, prepping the grill. She supposed Louis was a very large man, probably the victim of his own cooking. 
You mustn't wear an apron and chef hat. You probably look like a genie or a barret. Louis's head was shaved and one small gold hoop earring for the through through she believed that both of his ears may have been pierced at one time. People talked about him saying he was a dangerous man. They did time, but they wouldn't elaborate. Joy didn't believe any of it. She entered the cafe and placed all the pies in the counter, looked up and smiled at him. Isn't it good? Louis said, scoffing at the scrutinized as he scrutinized her, but he still at eyes. Why, Joy? A smile faded from her face. What was the problem with the pies? There's that shit that you got on your face. Tell me the son of a bitch didn't hit you again. Go ahead, lie to me again, Joy. Disarmed, Joy took a seat on the stools of the counter, put her face in her hands and began to sob. No, Donnie, no, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to make you cry, Louis said after a short moment. He moved closer to her and speaking a little quiet and said, I got so pissed seeing you come here all beaten up. If I had a girl like you, I'd treat her like a queen. Louis took a deep breath while Joy still had her face curled in her hands. If I ever see that little prick, I'll kick his ass. Why don't you leave him, Joy? Why do you stay? There are many reasons why she didn't leave, Dave. He would always bring her back if she tried. You can never leave me, Joy. Trust me, I find you. The only way you leave me is if you die. As that's the last time, if you make me look for you once I get more, I'll kill you, you mine. You'll always be mine. Joy began to feel sick in her stomach as she tried to forget the words Dave said to her. When she tried to run, she lifted her face from her hands and glanced at Louis. Louis's jaw dropped in his grasp. Dear Lord Jesus, sweet Jesus, he quickly covered his mouth with his hands and shut his eyes shut. Judging from his action, Joy glanced down at her hands and saw they were covered in ivory, kissed beige, pressed powder and makeup. Oh no, she looked back at Louis. A groan developed in the back of her throat. She grabbed a napkin from the dispenser on the counter and wiped her hands, then hopped off a stool and headed for the ladies' room to fix her face, leaving Louis standing there. Louis. Louis Ephesae. He insisted he was called Louis. Could feel, his, could feel his heart sink in his gigantic chest, feel remorse for being so cruel. He eyed the floor with a steely stare as Joy stepped away from him. He was helpless as a newborn pup, trying to muzzle his way from his mother's teeth. Looking at Joy's bruised face made him ill. She, he felt if he was going to puke. He prided himself on control he had on his emotions. He fought back to time, but he didn't. He had glare that could... That could curdle blood, his stance, his cool as I stare. His mass made him a winner in any disagreement. He is one that he didn't mess with. Yet there was something about Joy that made him weak. She was sweet and the baked goods she brought in. When he was round her, he was vulnerable to teddy bear who couldn't harm a fly. Gone with tough boy image. Oh, so he thought. He stood behind the counter, closed his eyes for a short moment, breathed in deeply and let out breath out slowly. He kept doing this until he clenched fists, eased, and his rage calmed. He took one more breath, all in, and smelled those pies, the pies she baked. He opened his eyes and looked down at the counter and saw the stack of white boxes, 
two canvas bags. He took the bags and stacked the pies back. He could feel the calm. He worked to, so hard to find elaborate. Evaporate. He was cruising, cursing from beneath his breath as he headed back to the kitchen. He seemed joy beaten up before. There was something different about today. Oh, he couldn't put his finger on it. Made him angrier than he could ever recall himself feeling. And trying as he might, he could not calm himself. She could, he, she could be his. She could be his girl. They could run this place together. God knows he's tried to do it, tired of doing it himself. He didn't know how to approach her on the subject. It seemed that he was, when he was around he could get tongue-tied, not knowing what to say. He, he knew one thing was certain, though. If he, she was his, she would treat him better. So what matter if he's 30 years as a senior? Hey, it doesn't matter. He, he sighed, regretting her, his younger days. We loved them and leave, leave them. He'll, he'll whisper sweet nothings to the girl, and he died by. Take them home, bed them, and not remember their name next day. He never realised he'd wake up one day and discover he could never be... He would have been this lonely. He'd always said that he'd eventually find the right one someday, and that someday never, someday came and went, or maybe didn't come at all. He wasn't sure. He always felt as if Troy was the right one for him. God knows he could and would take her, care of her. You, you don't eat where you shit, jackass. He's carried a few of the pies into the walk, walk-in refrigerator, stacked them on the shelves close to the entrance, forgot about loving her. He knew one thing was certain. If ever he did see that useless excuse of man, and would think of nothing better than to do, than to beat him the shit out of the most beautiful girl in the world, he would kill him. It would be nothing, it would be worth getting in trouble for the, with the law again. A troll of faith, when the devil knows your name. Chapter One, The Devil Among Us. Auntie Mori sat, faced me, sitting in the warm water, speaking and playing as he splashed a little, enjoying the fun. We could hear as a car pulled up and parked the door, parking, closing a moment later front door of the house opened and closed. A minute later the raised voice of rage echoed up the stairs and found us in our watery sanctuary. The voice pounded and reverberated, soon joined by a chorus, breaking classes and cer- ceramic. I was scared. I could feel my mother's voice crying. She never fought back. She knew that there would be an irreversible mistake. I moved slightly. My mouth began to foam at that sound. My aunt's hand raised slowly out of the water. I watched droplets fall from her finger, making nervous flashes below as, it, as, as she put it slowly to her lips. After a moment, she whispered, Don't say anything. We sat motionless in the bath for another minute while, she temp- while the tempest raged below us. But fear overtook me and my body began to quake. I shook involuntarily in my aunt and Omar, which his aunt infusiate Farsi, reached forward and put her arms around me, saying, It's okay, baby, please, just don't say anything. I was confront, 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 
comforted only slightly because of, because his heavy steps grew quickly closer. I tried to keep it as still as possible. The bathroom door suddenly burst open with explosive fury. My father's foot made an unwelcome entrance into the room, coming to rest violently on the cold tile floor. My Aunt Maria stood in the tub and grabbed a towel, sitting out on the countertop beside me, covering himself and saying to him in Barfarisi, Brother, I'm naked. I have no clothes on. And Margaret is here. She is scared. She just reached in full stature in the tub at last. Word left her lips, but she didn't have a good grasp on the towel. It slipped and dropped, revealing her naked body again. She immediately bent down to pick it up. He stepped forward and raised his boot violently, and he catched her in the face directly, directly across the nose. She flew from the tub and landed on the blood floor, blood draining quickly through the broken nose that was smashed sideways. He took another step towards her and he kicked her. She tried to get up, he, but he kicked her again. He attempted to move away, but he landed a fist to her face, then another to her chest. A beating continued, pounding her in the face. He, he wouldn't relent. I watched in pure horror as my beloved aunt atoned for some unknown sin in the hands of this devil. I shook and wanted to collapse and wince of each violent blow. After another minute, he was exhausted and turned and walked out the door, screaming at my traumatised mother to take Mulder to the hospital before he, she bled to death. It, she, was a lie, she was to lie and say the poor girl fell. Before they could before they could leave, my dad barked for Mulder to put the children to bed so he wouldn't have to worry about it. My mother and Maria were gone that night. I lay in bed with my brothers, fearful the wolf would return and eat us alive. I kept assuring him, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry, he's not going to hurt us. He came coming to our room and opening the door, pecking in to make sure we weren't going doing anything to threaten or remind him. I lay under the blanket, shaking uncontrollably, praying it would not look at me and see me quaking and know that I was afraid. I tried to stop shaking, but I was physically unable to control myself. Oh God, I prayed, just help me to st- be still, so he won't see what I'm awake. I prayed for it, prayed it for hours. When the moonlight finally came, I found my mother return at Aunt Maury. My dad must have left by then, because I heard the woman speaking in hushed tones at him. I must leave, Maury said, but my mother cried and pleaded to her. No. I cannot live this way until I long no any longer. I must go. Please don't leave me alone with him. I heard my other voice plead. I have to leave. I will die if I stay here. Where will you go? My mother asked. In fact, even at age of ten, I knew that women had no friends outside our house. None of us did. We were secluded, sequestered from life, and hidden from friends. We were one. Other ways, he kept us all prisoner in his cool little kingdom. You told we went and who we saw. He allowed nothing that might possibly infringe his absolute control over us. He was isolated, imprisoned. We were uh, we were in this together, a happy family under the spell of the religious warrior fraud. I stayed in bed and listened to their muffled conversation against the walls. I heard tears and fear, pleading. I prayed at me and my ma would choose to stay with me. I prayed she would not leave me behind with the devil. I heard light footsteps come 
walking up the stairs, I watched the door open. It was Amara. I instantly saw the sadness of a blacker noise even behind those vengeances. Margaret, my little darling, she whispered. She crossed the room and came towards me. Margaret, my baby. Amara, I wished I whispered a panic. How are you? I'm so worried about you, Amara. She looked at me through the mess just hours earlier, beaming her pretty face. She darkened her eyes, squeezed together, and tears ran from her corners and disappeared into the ghouls. I have come to tell you goodbye, little darling, she said. Goodbye? Where are you going, Mama? Will you be, will, when will you be back? I asked her eagerly. Oh, little baby, she cried as she sat beside me on the bed. I must leave. I can't stay here any longer. Please don't go, I begged her. No, please stay with me, Emma. We were both crying. Then she shook her head and said, I have to go. I can't be here any longer. She, she, could, not, she could not mention my dad or what he had done to her, but simply, simply pressed, I must go, baby, leaving Lane Bane is where it belongs. I cried and pleaded with her. Take me back, take me with you, Emma, I blurted, seizing the fault. I can't, I have nowhere to go, she cried all the more. So anguish, anguish shook, shook her to the core. Baby, you are not mine to take, she said, trembling and crying. I begged her not to leave me. She said, my mother, as much as mother had been, even more, I could not let her go. It was impossible for me to live without my Emma. Who would help me? Smile. Who would protect me? Her arms trembled as she held mine me closer and whispered, I love you, Margaret, my little baby. I wept as she kissed my goodbye, turning to walk away from my bedroom door. I heard her unsteady footsteps clamber down the hall and down the stairs. There was a woman's voices and pleading below, and the door closed and it stopped. I listened, you heard, but heard nothing more. After a minute there was muffled whimpers and arose like death well of a weak animal expending its very last breath before finally expiring. A few more murmurs, a soft cry, then silence. Even Mum had given up. Irma was gone. It was over. We had, we would be left alone when the devil returned. My mother, Risa Vazes, was raised in San Antonio, Texas. My dad, Afrin, Afrin Hostili, was an Iran, Iranian Air Force pilot who came to states of fighting training I met my mother during off-duty hours in San Diego. I dated. My mother became pregnant with me. Being a Catholic girl of Hispanic ancestry, she felt compelled to hide the shame from her pregnancy. My parents and followed my dad to Iran, where she lived with him and his family. My dad decided to marry her, even though the proper thing to do, which although the proper thing to do, brought with it some possible jeopardy. He tried to keep the matter as discreet as possible, but then the authorities scrutinised the paperwork. Questions were asked. He was jailed for the crime of marrying a non-Muslim. My mother was beheaded and constantly what and constantly waited on was befriended and constantly waited by my dead sister Mori. Mori was a sweet and lovely lady, and she is a true friend of my mother. She was treated horribly by a family however, respected to clean, cook and serve as for those she was lowly hired help. She was born in 1964. My dad allowed my mother to call, name me. I get, she gave me a sweet Latina name, Margareta. I, call, I, am call, I was called Margaret. I am Hosanic. 
which carries some weight in it. I only helped my mother to take care of me, and three of us were inseparable for the next ten years of my life. Mum was cautious when even concerned about raising me in the social environment of Tehran. She wouldn't see how most of the women were treated and began to understand that things would eventually be, be the same for a baby girl if the little family remained in Iran. She explained to me that later that some they saw women being treated as personal property like goats fiercely beaten in the streets without many buyers giving the flogging a second look. She felt that the arranged marriage was a nightmare for many of the young women as young as 12 years of age and began to plan how we could leave that country. She convinced my dad that there would be a better opportunity for us in America. He liked the idea much better than the jail he had been in. So he worked the deal with the government that would take his infidel wife and uh, leave when, if they could, if, if they would release him. The government relented and my mother and my father brought me here with them and started a new life in San Antonio, Ontario. My mother felt the same, felt being away from my dad at that time had been cruel and learned had been a heavenly gift. The fledgling marriage began to falter as he frequently visited with other women. My mum spotted signs of infidelity, thought the proper thing to do was confront him. My dad felt that he was entitled to any extramarital privileges that pleased him. And when my mother complained, she quickly found a fist at her eye or nose for a ward. His cruelty increased and my mother was tightly controlled through regular beatings and threats to do worse. Though my mother continued to bear my dad's children, not by choice, she sank from her role, a wife and a mother. My mama began to take, be my comforter and my caretaker. My dad's abuse was poured out onto my mother, and then Amma. He screamed at them, called them horrible names, and beat them readily. The women feared for their lives, and Ma did the best to protect me from the danger to safeguard me from the violence. She took me daily to the parks, the public swimming pool in the summer. I was away from my home as many hours a day as possible, and all the daily routine, daily exposure to the sun, rendered my satanic skin, skin deep brown, deep brown as possible, causing some to think I must hail from India. My brother Mutizia was born in nineteen seventy eight. I when I was when I was four, my, all of my brothers were given proud Muslim names. Farisi names Farisi is a language of Persia, mainly Iran. Mutsia was called Martha, called Martha by most of his friends. All of my brothers had their Persian names and American nicknames. I asked my mother why I didn't have a Farisi name. She told me my dad allowed me to name her the, her name that name the girl. That's when I understood the girls had little value in that world. It didn't really matter what you name her. So even this disrespected mother had given the right to name the baby if she is a girl. Morrison was followed by Roger or David in 1981. He was followed by Marahatab Matt in 1982. He was followed by Mohammed or Mo in 1983. Dot Myama continued to care for all the children, considered because of my dad to be a permanent nanny.
Clever Friends, written by Kimley Matthews, illustrated by McCann Snip, dedicated to my son, Kenson. Mummy and Daddy love you so much. Yippee! I can't wait to make baby cousin, Cairo shouted joyfully through, while staring through the front door. So much to teach him and so many adventures to go on. He'd be my forever friend. Story time. Sue. Aquariums. Adventures. Fun. Museums. Woof, woof. Cairo barks as he hears mum and dad enter the driveway. Finally, he's, he's home. I can see. I can see. Can I see? Carol yelps anxiously. Forever Friends, Carlson and Kilto is about a newborn baby named boy named Carson and his pet Yorkshire Squawk Terrier. Coco, they quickly become forever friends that will go on in this fun field adventures throughout the series. Stay tuned.